we say that we believe that God has something to say to you today. And, uh, and I just want to encourage you to, to take that as truth. That uh, we gather in church for a lot of different reasons, but one of, uh, one of those reasons is because we believe that God's going to speak to us. And it's not just going to be information for our brains to kind of, oh, that was interesting info, but it's actually when God speaks to us, it transforms part of who we are. His, his word, whether we read it or we hear it, goes into our hearts, and it takes root and it changes something. It tweaks us, it, it develops, it grows if we'll allow it to. And there are many times in my life I showed up to church just because it was my moral obligation. Just, I'm supposed to go to church on Sunday. Uh, I like the people. I like the coffee. It's something for my kids to do. It's a break from my kids. You know, whatever the reasons are, those are not wrong, but the primary, uh, primary goal is that we will experience the presence of God and we'll experience him speaking to us and that his word would have an effect on us. Uh, that's what this period of time uh, is for. So, I just say that as I, this morning, it just that popped into my heart, like, this is why we come. This is why we come. I mean, I like seeing you guys once a week as well. I mean, we're friends. I mean, that's a big part of it, but that's not the only part. And if that was the only part, I would rather meet you Saturday at the beach or something than sit in pews all staring at me. That would be a whole lot more fun for me. Um, but uh, we do this on Sunday morning because God's going to speak to us. It's not Pastor Steve going to speak to you, although God's going to use me to speak to you. That through his word that we're going to read, through, through we, we see what God is doing, something's going to get deposited in us. It's going to open our heart, open our eyes, our mind to who God is. He's going to speak to us. He's going to encourage us. He's going to equip us um, to live this life that he's called us to live and to be like him. So uh, I hope that you're here this morning with that kind of anticipation it's expectation that even if uh, it, the scriptures I read today you've read a thousand times and heard preached a hundred times before, that God's going to speak to something in the now and in the moment that you needed to hear. So, with that being, let's uh, bless. We are in the middle of a of a theme, uh, shocking Jesus. Imagine that at church we're going to talk about Jesus. And the reality is, I think this is going to be a theme we're just going to hang out at the rest of the year. You're like, it's only March, Pastor Steve. What do you mean the rest of the year? You're like, no, we're going to, I think we're going to talk about Jesus the rest of the year. Um, it's a great, the focus, he's the center of our faith. And uh, um, we've been through a lot as a, as a community. We're still going through a lot, right? All the uh, last two years, um, someone said this morning, like, man, it seems like there's a crisis at every corner. It doesn't matter. Like, this was going on, and as soon as I came out, I was like, oh, fresh air, breath air. Bang, something else hits, right? And it just seems to be a season. And I think in those kinds of seasons, we dial back, and we focus on what's most important, and that's Jesus. So I'm going to start today between now and Easter. Uh, we have four weeks, counting today, and then the fifth Sunday is Easter. What happened, right? The time's flying by. I want to focus... Uh, on the Gospels, that each Gospel writer presented Jesus in a certain way to their audience, that they were writing uh, about Jesus, um, their focus was uh, slightly different, and so each Sunday we're going to talk about 
Jesus through the eyes of that gospel. So today we're going to talk about uh, Jesus in Matthew. Next week it'll be Jesus in Mark, and so on. So if you want to be read up, if you're looking for something to read biblically, this coming week, <clears throat> excuse me, read the book of Mark. It's 16 chapters. Two, you could do what, two a day or starting today? Um, it's a quick read. You could actually stand, probably read it all in about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. So that's where we'll be next week. But today we're going to be in Matthew. <clears throat> Excuse me. So a little bit of history here because uh, it's important for us whenever we're talking about scriptures to understand context. Text is what's going on uh, around. So, uh, you know, a thousand years from now when some historian, if, if we're still on this earth that long, starts looking at, you know, Hyannis in the year 2022, they're going to have to uh, not just look at how we acted, but understand the context of what's going on in our society. Like, there was a war in Ukraine. They were fighting a pandemic. They were, right, they, the historian would have to know that to understand why we were behaving or talking the way we were talking. So, that being said, uh, Matthew wrote to a predominantly Jewish audience, okay? Um, and this audience, the, the Jewish folks, were waiting for the promised Messiah. The whole nation, basically, that was their, like, waiting for this Messiah that had been promised to come. And so, it's important for us to understand what the Old Testament has to say about the Messiah, uh, to understand the book of Matthew. Does that make sense? Because they got their ideas of, the Jewish people got their ideas of who the Messiah was from the Old Testament. And so we're going to just really briefly, I mean, in Bible school, this is like an entire semester of learning. So we're, we're just, just going to touch base. So the first reference to the Messiah, believe it or not, is in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 15, uh, as Adam and Eve are getting kicked out of the garden, uh, God says this, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So right from the get-go, Adam and Eve are exiting uh, the Garden of Eden, and God speaks about this, uh, this, this offspring that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, we know now that that's Jesus. Then I'm sure Adam and Eve are kind of like, okay, like, right? Um, then we're going to jump ahead, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, God calls Abram, his name later changes to Abraham, but he calls Abram to leave his home, his father's home, and take his family, and he says this, go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's a, that promise of God points to Jesus Christ who came to save the sins of all mankind that all people on the earth would be blessed through what God was going to do through Abraham. Wow. Can you imagine hearing that promise uh, 
and you're married to a woman who's barren, who can't have kids, that's a whole other sermon. Like the entire world is going to be blessed through your offspring. My wife can't have kids, right? But man, God is God. And that's the beauty of Scripture in the Bible, that God does the impossible through people who just say yes. So from this point on, there's a continual building from uh, this point that lays a, a groundwork for us to understand who God is and the promised Messiah. Uh, and there's a lot of general prophecies and a lot of uh, types and those kinds of things, which we don't have time to go into today. But we start with uh, Abram, who becomes Abraham, his offspring Isaac, then Jacob. And then we see Joseph, we see Moses and Aaron, we see Joshua, we see the judges who ruled Israel, we see King David come on the scene, then his son Solomon. And through all of these generations and stories, another piece about who God is and who this Messiah, what God looks like, kind of gets opened up. Kind of like when I was a kid, I don't know if you do this anymore, but they have advent calendars. And like every day I got to open up a little door and see something different about the Christmas story. It's it's kind of what happened throughout the Old Testament. God just continues to keep revealing pieces of himself. And then the most dominant language around the Messiah comes about through the prophets when Israel is conquered and taken captive. Uh, Leading up to this point, there's some. The the Psalms has some great language in it. Uh, There's like Joshua, who's a, who's a type. There's a Moses who puts the serpent on the, on the staff, and all who look to the serpent. So there's, there's pieces, but specific language starts to come about around the prophets. And I'm just going to, we're just going to read two of the prophets this morning. First, um, let's look at Ezekiel. And chapter 37, verses 24 through 27. The prophecy is this. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So we start to see this language. My servant David, like, well, David's dead. David been dead. They're talking about his offspring. And then they're talking about this covenant of peace. And that he'll be a king that will reign over all people on the earth. And he'll be, he'll, uh, he'll, like I said, he'll bring peace. And he will live with them, not separate from them. And these promises that are kind of specific about the promised Messiah. Let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah probably... Uh, is the most prolific in, in writings that describe specifically uh, the, the Messiah. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, very famous Christmas time we read this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government, meaning his rule, and peace, there will be no end, meaning his governing and peace will never end. It will be forever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we start to see this more language, like he's going to govern the world. And he's going to come with justice. And he's going to make every wrong right. And he's going to bring in a peace that will last forever. He'll be a descendant of, of David. Um, and so on and so forth. And let's jump ahead. I know I'm doing a lot of reading this morning, but we're establishing a kind of a foundation here to chapter 52. Starting in verse 13. Now, I just want to remind you, uh, this was written... Seven, approximately 700 years before Jesus was born. So this wasn't like somebody wrote it the, the year before, they wrote it after Jesus was born, and they, this was written, all of Israel understood these scriptures uh, from infancy. It says this in verse 13, See, my, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's very specific language written 700 years before Christ even walked the earth, right? I mean, the punishment and the, and the being marred beyond appearance and being pierced and us being heal, uh, healed because of him. Just want to give you some language that this is, all of this is language that the uh, Jewish people readily understood and were looking for in their promised Messiah. That there was going to be this, this person that would come and liberate. In fact, most theologians agree that there are more than 300 prophecies relating to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And 55 of them are very specific. Here are some examples. He would be, uh, have a virgin birth. Uh, he'd be uh, born in Bethlehem. He'd be a descendant of King David. Uh, he would be announced by a forerunner, which was John the Baptist. 
that there would be a great slaughter of children in Bethlehem around his time, that he would do miracles, that he would come riding on a donkey, that he'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, he'd be mocked by a crowd, he'd be beaten and spit upon, he would speak in parables, they would cast lots for his clothes, he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, his ministry would be based out of Capernaum. These are just 14 uh, specific things written about him long before he walked this earth. Some of them uh, maybe within his control, if he was just a mere man, but many of them not. Like, how can you force a crowd uh, to pierce you? Right? I mean, you might could force the idea that I'm coming in to ride as a donkey. Or you could force, like, I'm going to speak in parables if he was a man. But you can't force the slaughter of children when it's not in your power to do so. Or where you'd be born or those kinds of things. The point is this. Uh, somebody did some scientific math and said, of uh, these spe- specific that the odds of one person uh, fulfilling nine of them, uh, the odds would be similar. I've shared this story once before, was if you took a silver, silver dollar and you laid down enough silver dollars in the state of Texas two feet deep, which is in silver dollars over the entire state of Texas, There are parts, if you drive across the state, it takes you all day just to drive across the state. So it's a huge, it's huge. And somebody flies over the state of Texas and randomly throws out one marked silver dollar. And then somebody else starts blindfolded at the other side of Texas and begins to walk across the state and randomly, at their choice, scoops down and picks up a silver dollar That's the one that was thrown out of the airplane. That's the chances of one individual fulfilling nine of these prophecies in themselves. And here I just listed 14, and there's actually 55 in Scripture. Specific, many of them general. All that to say is it's proving like, hey, uh, the fact of one person fulfilling all these is a miracle that only God can orchestrate. Now, the Jews believed in a messianic age, which means this Messiah would come, and this Messiah would save the people uh, from their oppressors, from their current situation, uh, and liberate them, and and bring them into a kingdom uh, that was permanent that they would never again be under slavery, they would never, never again be oppressed, that, that they would be in a kingdom that would last and be ruled forever by a king like King David. And this Messiah would usher in a period of peace that the entire world would experience. And Jews today still believe this, that this messianic age is coming at some point. This is the group of people that Matthew is writing to understands all the prophecies, believes a messianic age is coming and will be fulfilled. Matthew is writing to this group of people. And the reason his gospel starts off with a genealogy of Jesus Christ, you know those, that first chapter that you're like, yeah, 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 flip, right? Because <laughs> we're all like, 
Why? This is why. Because Matthew is proving that Jesus is from the line of David and from Abraham. Because he's writing to a Jewish audience who says, hey, the Messiah needs to be from the line of David, meaning an ancestor of King David. As he goes on through his Gospels, he begins uh, to point out Old Testament writings and the understandings of the Messiah. And he does this for a reason. He does this to prove that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He points to an Old Testament uh, prophecy, and then he says, here's how Jesus fulfilled it. Now, I know there's teachings in there, there's parables mixed in there, but the general theme of Matthew is he's writing to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. All 14 of of these specific uh, um, prophecies that I listed, Matthew shows every one of them in his gospel that Jesus uh, uh, fulfilled that. Every one of these is f- Matthew points to in his gospel, which is crazy, right? So for a Jewish person who believes that a Messiah is coming, who believes the Old Testament writings, is, can read this and look down and go, yeah, I know that I, Isaiah said this. I know that Hosea said this. I know that Zacharias said this about the Messiah. And he's like, yeah, well, Jesus did that one. And 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 if he did all of these, what are the chances of one person fulfilling all of them? He must be the Messiah. So this is why Matthew uh, was his overarching goal in writing this. And by doing this, Matthew is proving that their idea of a Messiah, who is a savior, a liberator, and a bringer of peace, is Jesus Christ. It's amazing. But that's amazing. Now, the Jews ultimately in Scripture rejected Jesus uh, because they thought, uh, uh, they disagreed, they didn't understand the method with which Jesus was doing. They were looking for him to come in a way that was different. They were looking for him to come like King David, like a natural king who was going to come in with a great army and conquer with great conquest and bloodshed and set up these this empire like the Babylonians or the Romans, and they just ruled the world. That's the, their, where their mind was at. So they were looking at the way in which the Messiah was coming, and they missed the, Jesus Christ and ultimately rejected him because he didn't come the way they thought he was going to come. It should be a lesson for us. People who... People who knew their scriptures, I forget, maybe Sean can, can help me, at what age they had to memorize the Torah. I don't remember. But I think it was, um, um, I'm forgetting the name of the holiday. In order for a Jewish boy to become a man, they had to memorize the Torah. So whatever, I forget what, what uh, like a bar mitzvah kind of thing. So most of us in this room are over 12, Can you imagine having to memorize the first five books of the Bible before you were 12 years old? Memorize them. So they knew these scriptures. 
They knew them way better than you or I. And in knowing these scriptures and studying these and being brought up and being taught and told, this is how God is going to deliver us. And through this and being excited for that and completely missing it because he didn't come in the way that they thought. Just saying, it's a, it, it should be a lesson for us as well. That's not where we're going today. That's, just, that's a freebie. So the question now is this. Okay, that's great. Matthew, Matthew wrote... Um, Matthew wrote to, to the Jewish folks to prove that he's the Messiah and that he's this great savior, liberator, and bringer of eternal peace. What does that mean for us? Most of us in this room aren't Jewish, if anybody. Um, how does that affect us? Right? So, um, this is how it affects us, that Jesus is a savior, liberator, and bringer of peace for all people, but the biblical idea of peace is more than the absence of conflict. And uh, I was studying it, and I was going to articulate it, but then I found this amazing three-minute video from the Bible Project that they do all the nice visual writing and showing and explaining, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to play that video because uh, they do it much better than I could. So, um, guys, if you just remember to unmute, and we'll go play the video. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others. Like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. 
The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Shalom. Uh, wholeness, completeness. Um, and we know that Jesus, we know from the book of Revelations, that there's a future aspect uh, to this promise, that there will be a day that Jesus is going to return and he's going to save his creation by liberating it from evil, right? We see that clearly in the book of Revelation that God is going to come through Jesus Christ and just vanquish all of evil and liberate creation, you and me as well as uh, the the animals, and everybody else, because we looked last week, all of creation groans, right? So he's going to liberate it from evil, and then he's going to bring a time of peace that will last forever. And this peace isn't just the absence of conflict, but the peace that Christ is going to bring is the restoration of wholeness. We're not just talking, we're not talking about a brick wall that he's going to go around and put all the bricks in. Um, that's an example. But in our lives, in our relationships, in our communities, he's going to bring a wholeness, which is where, that, where it comes in, where there'll be no more tear, there'll be no more hunger, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more fill in the blank. Because there'll be a wholeness to, uh, to us as a community of people. There will be no brokenness. Is that amazing or what? And this is our promise as believers that we will be partakers of that future community where there is peace, where there's complete wholeness and nothing broken exists, including us, including our relationships with family, with friends, with God, with anything described as perfection, which is amazing. Look forward to that. I know I do. There's a lot of broken stuff on this world, including me. And I'm looking forward to the day when I'm, not, when I'm completely unbroken. Amen? <laughs> but I want to tell you today, this, also, this promise also carries a present-day tense. And this is the piece that we often forget about or overlook as people. 
as the video pointed out, Jesus came to restore that peace with God, that the wholeness to restore our relationship so it's no longer broken. And Jesus accomplished that so that we now have access to God and access, uh, future access to this community of perfection. Our relationship with him is made whole again. But it's more than that as well. You see, we already know that shalom means, uh, doesn't just refer to the absence of conflict, but I love the line ahead in this video, that it refers to the presence of something better. It wasn't just the absence, it was the presence of something better. And Jesus came to restore what was broken to wholeness. And here's the thing. You and I, we can experience that here and now, not just there. Now the perfection of that, we won't experience here. But the, the internal for you and I, we can experience this here. You see, sometimes our brokenness, uh, we're not in control of that. As, as far as our relationships with others, right? Whether that be family members, com- neighbors, community, co-workers, those kinds of things. And there's part of us that have uh, broken and we carry scars. But the promise of peace is that Christ comes and brings us peace. That internally we can have shalom. We can experience a, a wholeness that comes through Jesus Christ and him living within us. In knowing that, what's our response? Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's summing up chapter 3, and it's, it's this living godly lives in a pagan society kind of uh, writing in this chapter. And in, in verse 10, he says this, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. I mean, if you grew up in the church, you heard that from your mom or your dad or people in the church like, like no swearing, no lying, watch what you say, right? Those kinds of things. Look at verse 11. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Well, that peace is Irenae, shalom. So Peter's saying, if you want to live a good life and have good days, you must Turn from evil, do good, and seek peace. Seek, what, the absence of conflict? That's natural for all of us, right? I mean, well, I guess some people love, love a good fight. We won't, we won't ask you to raise your hands. What he's saying is to seek wholeness. It's not just the absence of conflict. If you would enjoy this life, seek to be made whole. Seek to be healed from your brokenness. What does that mean personally? It means turning from evil. I mean, Peter just said, turn from evil. Decide, I'm not going to partake in evil. 
You say, well, who determines what is evil? We said last week, God sets the standard. God gets to determine what's evil and what's not. And that's important for us. The reason it's important for us is because we were warned that in the last days, people would call what is good evil and what is evil good. So you don't want to define what you're staying away from by the world's standards because they might be telling you to stay away from what's good for you. What's going to lead you to wholeness. Let's take a moment and just say, and, and remember that wholeness is different than being happy or feeling good. I mean, I feel really, really good when I have a Five Guys milkshake. <clears throat> But it does not lead me to wholeness. <clears throat> right? I mean, it might lead me to wholeness, but it doesn't lead me to wholeness, if you know what I mean. And the fries, right? It's getting too close to lunch in here. <clears throat> and that's, that's why we, we, we decide when we're walking this faith that says, I'm, I'm going to reject what God calls evil, and I'm going to embrace what God calls good, and I'm going to pattern my life after what God defines as good, because I know that that leads me to wholeness. That leads me to peace. And i got to tell you, for most of us... Um, some of our brokenness comes out of the effects that others have had on us. They, they harm us, right? But a good part of our brokenness comes because we love sin. I mean, man, I, I love a good burger, fries, and a milkshake. But if I just ate that every day, I'd be in the ground really soon. It's not going to lead me to good life and long living. And it's the same way with what God calls as good for us. There's parts of our life that doesn't lead us to wholeness. doesn't lead us to internal peace. But man, we love it. And then we complain that God doesn't take it away or heal us. God, why am I broken? God says, well, walk away from... What leads you to brokenness? That's a little bit of personal responsibility and choice in there. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us. It just means sometimes we make poor decisions and we, we enjoy our poor decisions. We just don't like the consequences of our poor decisions. Ooh. I know that's stinging. That's like ripping the Band-Aid off. But this is how God speaks to me. Like, Steve, you're wondering why your head's a mess. Well, what have you been reading? What have you been looking? We all surf the internet, right? And sometimes we learn information or somebody's point of views and people get us all riled up and, ah, like, what are you feeding yourself, Steve? I wrote in my word that everything that's good, lovely, and true, and pure, think on these things and it will lead you to a transformation of your mind. But if you're going to reject that and look at garbage and anger and all this, is, you're, going to have, you know, you're going to have issues. So 
this affects us because Jesus came, he, he established for us a way in which we can live our life in the here and now that leads us to peace, wholeness within ourselves. And as a Christian, that's our responsibility. As our follower of Jesus to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow your way. And it's going to lead me. And I'm going to, I'm going to find myself becoming more and more whole and at peace with who I am. I might not be able to affect the peace around me. My community might be a mess. My country might be a mess. My world might be a mess. And at each other's throats in chaos. But in here, I'm whole. Because God leads me and I follow. <clears throat> The second response that we can have as it relates to this is that pursue peace, not just for ourselves, but for others. And I think this is important for us because uh, we should ask ourselves, what activities are we participating? Are the activities we're participating, whether that be our language or our actual actions, is it leading to other people's wholeness or is it not? Is it creating a lack of peace? In this situation with my family or with my coworkers or my neighbors or my buds at wherever I play sports, or are my actions leading to them moving towards an area of wholeness or am I creating chaos? Am I, am I doing harm as God sees it? Not necessarily as the world sees it. But do my activities lead to creating wholeness and restoring that? Or is it breaking down wholeness? You start asking yourself those questions and patterning, patterning your life's choices and actions after those questions, you're going to see a huge difference in your life and the people around you. Because there's ways that I can talk to people to get my point across. Some Sometimes it will lead to wholeness, and sometimes it will lead to a breakdown. It's the method, right? So if I'm concerned with where that goes, I'm going to think through and choose the path that leads to their wholeness. If my neighbor's fighting with me over where the fence line is, or if, if they're angry because my dog is pooping in their yard, or whatever it is, there's a response that I can have towards them that will lead to a wholeness and a building of our relationship versus a tearing apart and a breaking and adding to the chaos. This is why Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you. Because there's a response I can have that's going to increase my conflict with them or a response that's going to lessen and put us on a path towards wholeness. And Christ would always have us take the path towards wholeness and peace because it reflects him. Even if it's the harder path. Because I think all of us would agree that Jesus took the most difficult path to bring us our peace. Or wholeness. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to leave comfort. He was willing to do a lot of things to become a friend of sinners in order to see our peace and our wholeness in reality. So when Peter says, seek peace, turn from evil and seek peace, 
we leave evil behind what God calls evil, we embrace what God calls good, and we seek uh, activities that create wholeness and uh, mend things instead of tear things apart in our own life as well in the lives of the people around us. And when we do that, we are reflecting the, the Christ that lives in us that he gave us. Especially when it's difficult. Especially when it's difficult. So what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I would argue with anybody all day long that a life lived that way in front of the world is way more effective in bringing people to the Lord than staying on a street corner and preaching or passing out tracts or wagging your finger at somebody on Facebook. But when you live a life of seeking somebody else's fulfillment and wholeness in their life, what is going to be their response back to you? Which is what Peter argues on in the in the subsequent verses after chapter 3. Who's going to do you harm if you're doing them good? Right? If you're seeking their whole being and their wellness, and man, I just want to help you grow and get better, like, oh, I hate you for helping me. Like, it changes people. And that's how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that brings peace, changed the world 2,000 years ago. And I got to tell you, if I'm really honest, the lack of it is why the world is changing the other way. Because we're not people who are seeking peace for our own lives or for the people around us. And I'll leave you to decide where it is in your life. As we as we wrap today up, my, my charge for us as a church, my charge for you as an individual, is that Jesus Christ came, and there will be a day that everything in this world and outside this world will be reconciled, will be restored, there'll be no more conflict, all things will be made whole, he will liberate us from evil, and we will live for an eternity in that state. Until then, It is our role and our responsibility to reflect Jesus Christ in the way we live. And if he is a a savior and liberator, which we're not saviors, but if he's a, a, a bringer of peace, a bringer of wholeness, then our activity should match his activity in that in our interactions and our actions with ourselves and with each other, we're focused... We're focused on that, that we're people of, uh, uh, that bring wholeness. When things are broken, we step in. We restore. We, we get involved. When we see broken things and broken people, we say, that shouldn't be. Whether it's somebody's mindset or their relationship with a fellow brother or sister, and you're like, hey, you, you know, God would have it that this brokenness wouldn't be there. How can we... How can we make this not just an absence of conflict, but a restoration where you're seeking the fit for each other? We're people who do that.
And as the video said, it requires humility, it requires patience, it requires lots of love, it requires these things. And as we step out and we, and we seek peace, as we seek to invest into other people, as we seek wholeness for ourselves, this, this requirement of humility, God teaches it and, and, and we learn how the humility, he, he brings it to us. We learn how to love, we learn how to be patient because that's part of our brokenness. Pride is part of our brokenness. Anxiety is part of our brokenness. Hatred is a part of our brokenness. Grudges are a part of our brokenness. Depression is part of our brokenness. They're very real things. And if you struggle with any of those things, your identity is not in your struggle. Your identity is in Christ, who will lead you out of that as you give yourself to him as you seek ways and, and, and you seek healing for yourself and you seek peace and wholeness for yourself and for those around you, God leads you out of those things. So it's not, I just think somebody here has to hear it today, like any of those things that you might wrestle with that God calls out, gossip, anger, hatred, discord, backstabbing, gluttony, depression, anxiety, all of these things. They might be things you're wrestling with, but that's not who you are. That's not your identity. Don't accept that, you know, I'm just an angry person. That's who I am. It's because I was hurt. That's probably a true statement, but that's not who you are. It's not your identity. God came to make you whole. He came to help you and set you free and liberate you from that. And because you have that doesn't mean God loves you less. And just because you don't have it doesn't mean God loves you more. It just means God wants to make you whole. He wants to make me whole. He wants to make everyone around you whole. So we identify those things and we say, God, make me whole. I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to to seek peace. I'm going to seek wholeness in my life and those around me. And as I do that, most of it God will lead me out of. Let's seek peace. Let's seek wholeness. Let's reflect the nature of our Lord and Savior as we wait for the day that all of it will be reconciled. Not just the absence of conflict, but the restoration of everything lost in the conflict. That's amazing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came in fulfillment of all of Testament prophets and that Matthew points out very clearly that you are the savior, liberator, and bringer of peace that the Old Testament pointed to and that we know that the fulfillment of all of that does not happen in its present state here on earth but when you return 
and you vanquish all evil, we'll enter into that state with you. But between then and now, we recognize that your promise has a present day tense as well. That if we will give our heart and our mind to following after you and to pursuing you and your, your ways, that it will lead us to wholeness, to, to being more whole, less broken than we are now. And that, Lord, you're inviting us to be a part of that process in other people's lives, that our language, our actions, would be actions that lead other people to wholeness. And that as we do those things, we reflect you to a broken world in profound ways. So Holy Spirit, by your power and by your presence, would you empower your people to live above the chaos and the brokenness of our own lives and the lives of those around us? Would you give us the strength and the stamina, the humility, the love for ourselves as well as those around us? That we would begin to realize your peace, your wholeness in our lives. Help us to not identify with our brokenness, but help us to identify our brokenness so that we can walk towards wholeness. And Lord, may you teach us the care, and the compassion, the empathy for those around us so that we can aid them on their journey to wholeness. Lord, we love you. Each week as we learn about you, we're so grateful for who you are and what you've invited us to be a part of. It's way beyond ourselves. It's something so much grander than anything this world has to offer. We willingly and excitedly give ourselves to you. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen, church. God bless you. It's really good to Good to see you this morning. Don't we have don't run off unless you have to. We got fellowship in the back. Chat with one another. Uh, be a part of each other's healing. God bless.